Well, good morning. We'll be continuing our study this morning through the Gospel of Matthew as we near the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus has been teaching to his disciples and those other listeners who have gathered around and as he has progressed through the Sermon on the Mount, beginning with the Beatitudes, that doorway into the Sermon on the Mount, which established the foundation for a true disciple in Jesus Christ. He's now, as he nears the end, entered into a section of warning for his disciples, for those who call themselves a disciple of Jesus Christ. And he's putting here before his disciples an important choice. Near the end of his life, after leading Israel in the conquest of much of Canaan, Joshua called together all of the elders, the tribes, and all the people of Israel, and he called them together to a valley called Shechem. Shechem sits in between two mountain ranges, or mountains, you would say, Mount Gezerim and Mount Ebal. Mount Gezerim represented the blessings of God. Mount Ebal represented the curses of God. And there the people stood on either side as Joshua speaking on behalf of God, delivered an important message and an important call to the nation of Israel. And God, through Joshua that day, near the end of Joshua's life, called upon Israel to choose that day whom they would serve. This was an important call. It was a call to serve God alone, Him and no other. There was not God plus something else. In fact, as part of his call, Joshua told the people to put away from themselves the idols of Egypt that were in their midst. The people who were now living and dwelling in the land, who had watched the previous generation die off in the wilderness because of their lack of faith, lack of trust, though they had seen the miracles and the plagues of Egypt and God's miraculous working and delivering them from Egypt, who had perished, Though they had witnessed all of this, they had seen the might and the power of God, they still clung to their idols. And so Joshua said, choose this day whom you will serve. Well, as we've said, Jesus is nearing the end of the Sermon on the Mount, and he's offering and highlighting for his disciples a similar crucial decision that has to be made. There's a similar climax here in Matthew 7 as Jesus calls upon those listening to make a choice. Will you choose the broad gate or the narrow gate? Will you choose the path of life or the path of destruction? Now on the one hand, when you put it in those terms, the choice sounds easy, doesn't it? So why is it that so many choose the path of destruction? Why is that the well-worn path? Why do so many go this route to enter through the broad gate that leads to destruction? Well, we're going to take time this morning to look at verses 13 through 20 of Matthew 7. So we might understand not only why so many choose the path of destruction, but how we might guard ourselves from being lured from the narrow path so that we might glorify our Father in heaven and how we live our lives on this earth. If you have your Bibles and can turn with me to Matthew 7, we're going to read together verses 13 through 20. Jesus says, beginning in verse 13, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter it. 
For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then, you will know them by their fruits. Pray with me as we begin our study this morning. Father, as we come to this important text this morning, this important decision that is presented before us, this choice that we must make between the narrow and the broad path, I pray that you would help us in understanding the implications, the seriousness of this choice, that we'd recognize it's not just a one-off decision, it's a decision that we have to continually make day after day after day as we guard our steps, as we watch our steps, as we continue walking forward, that we not err to the right or to the left. Father, may we pay attention to the false teachers that were warned of, the false prophets, so as to not be led astray. May our study this morning, our study through this text, help to guide our understanding, to protect us, and to guard us. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Well, in Matthew 7.13, we arrive at, as we've already said, a key juncture in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus turns to a discussion of the exclusivity of the path into the kingdom of heaven. And as we note, it's not marked simply by good deeds, but by the pursuit or by a pursuit of the will of God in all that we have heard throughout Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Jesus illustrates the options that lay before those hearing by describing here two paths and two gates. And I want to make some initial observations as Uh, regarding this text and these paths and these gates as we enter into our study here. We've already noted the two doors or the two gates, one being described as broad and the other as narrow. We've identified the two paths. Again, one that is described as broad or spacious. The other is confined or narrow. The spacious or easy path we see leads to this broad door of destruction, whereas the confined or the hard path leads to a door of life. We see that many enter the broad door of destruction, but we also see that few find the narrow door of life. As we look at Jesus' opening words here, we note that they are a plea for those to hear to enter the narrow gate and avoid destruction. Now, as Jesus is speaking, as he's on this mountainside, on this probably a flat plain on the mountainside, where the people are gathered around, his disciples closest, the rest of the people within earshot, able to listen to his teaching, there are not two physical doors standing behind him to which he is referring. There's not two paths that he's pointing to as he describes this broad and narrow path. We recognize this. He's using figurative language, or more specifically, the language of metaphor. And so what we need to do as we look at this, as we study this text, is we need to ask, what do these paths and what do these gates represent? 
Well, first, by looking at the description of the broad path, we should note that the term destruction is frequently used in the context of eternal punishment of the wicked. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, we find this word used in Job 21.30, describing the wicked as reserved for the day of destruction. In Philippians 1.28, destruction is juxtaposed or placed opposite salvation. The term is also used in 2 Peter 3.7 to describe the final day of judgment and destruction of ungodly persons. The destruction described by the broad gate then is a reference to eternal punishment of ungodly persons who do not believe in God nor seek to serve Him and obey Him alone. Opposite the broad gate of destruction stands the narrow gate of life. But what is the life that is promised to those who enter this gate? Well, in Matthew 19, Jesus is approached, and you know the story, by a rich young ruler. The rich young ruler, you may remember, asked Jesus, What good thing must I do so that I may obtain eternal life? Jesus, answering him, says that if he wishes to enter into life, he must keep the commandments. Then Jesus goes on to say, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And while we'll look at this parable in much more detail when we get to Matthew 19, for now note that entering the kingdom of heaven is there described as entering into eternal life. Within the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus reminded the disciples in Matthew 5.20 that unless their righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, they would not enter the kingdom of heaven. This is not just a New Testament concept. The psalmist writes in Psalm 118, verses 19 through 20, Open to me the gates of righteousness. I shall enter through them. I shall give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous will enter through it. This description of entering into the gates of the Lord, entering into His courts with praise, is a description of entering into eternal life. And by the way, a few verses later, we see the description. It's an oft-quoted verse where it says, This is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. This day that is being referred to, in which the psalmist rejoices, is not just any day. Yes, God has created all days, and we should give thanks for every day, and we should rejoice in all that the Lord does for us each and every day. But what the psalmist was specifically describing when he said, this is the day that the Lord has made, he's referring to the day when we enter the gates of life into the kingdom of God. And so the gates then stand as an image, one for eternal life and the other for eternal destruction. But what are the two paths? What do they represent? We need to ask, are are they synonymous with the doors? And therefore somewhat redundant? Or is there more to the picture Jesus is painting for those who will listen? Well first, it's helpful to know and to recognize that a way or a path was frequently used both in the Old Testament and by Jewish teachers in general as an ethical description and figure of speech for walking or living, specifically calling one to live in accordance to God's instructions by faithfully following and serving Him in this life. And the language of the way or the path 
uh, was, had other similar related terms that were often associated with it. Terms such as walking, feet, slipping, stumbling, turning, going to the right, to the left, all of these serving as additional metaphors that built upon this idea of living life in obedience to God's instructions. For example, we find in Deuteronomy 8.6, Therefore you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God, to walk in His ways, and to fear Him. Judges 2.22 we read, In order to test Israel by them, whether they will keep the way of the Lord, to walk in it as their fathers did, or not. Isaiah 30, verse 21, Your ears will hear a word behind you. This is the way, walk in it. Whenever you turn to the right or to the left. Or Jeremiah 6.16, Thus says the Lord, Stand by the ways and see and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it. And you will find rest for your souls. That word rest, by the way, is a in the Old Testament specifically, is imbued with theological connotation describing eternal life and the rest from the effect of sin in this world. But the end of Jeremiah 6.16 says, But they said, We will not walk in it. This language of walking in the path is also found throughout the New Testament. You probably recognize it. Paul says in Ephesians 4.1, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Ephesians 5.15 Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise. And in Colossians, Paul writes in Colossians 2.6 saying, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. John the Apostle writes in 2 John 2.6 And this is love that we walk according to His commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, that you should walk in it. So, while the gates and paths are clearly related, we can see that they are not the same thing. Yes, they refer to one another, they relate to one another, but they're not synonymous. The paths describe this life, while the gates pertain to entrance into the life to come. One describes life under the sun, that is the path. The other describes life after the sun, that is the gates. Now before we comment further on the choice with, of these two paths, look closer at the paths themselves. While several translations use the same terms of wide and narrow to describe both the paths and the gates, Jesus does not use the exact same words. He uses related terms and similar terms but terms with additional connotation, particularly when applied to the metaphor of life. The term wide is a term for spacious, roomy, or comfortable. It's more than just a description of measure. It implies comfort and ease in light of the spaciousness. It's used at times to describe a wide and spacious and comfortable room in which you can relax. In other words, it's not just a broad road that fits many persons, but it's spacious and roomy and offers comfort and ease in this life. And it's here that we begin to see the appeal of this path and why so many tread upon it. It promises comfort and ease in a hard and difficult existence. 
It advertises freedom from difficulty. It may offer and suggest that if you follow this path, you'll have wealth. This path encourages the pursuit of wealth. It promises to ease your time on this earth. The spacious path begins to look good when you see these things, when you hear these things. You begin to fall for the advertisements. You begin to ask yourself, why, why would I trouble myself? When I can take the easier route, why, why would I not take that easy route? Why, do I, why go through the hard route? Why make life that is already difficult more difficult? In fact, this becomes even more true when you understand the word that is describing this other path. If you have the English Standard Version, it may say hard. It is the hard way that leads to life. Or if the New English Translation and the Holman Christian Standard both describe it as the difficult road. In other words, it's not just narrow. It's actually hard or difficult. I think that hard or difficult is a much more helpful translation and a correct translation of the word Jesus uses here. It helps us to understand this term that is describing the way leading to the narrow gate. It's a word, by the way, that is related to trials or persecution. This aligns with what we find throughout the rest of the New Testament concerning what the faithful disciple can expect to experience as they walk this path toward the narrow gate. As they walk this path toward the gate of life and entrance into the presence of the kingdom of God, we're told it will be hard. Acts 14.22 says, Strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, saying, Through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. 2 Timothy 3.12 Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 1 Peter 2.21 For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in His steps. These two paths then are descriptions of our lives. They're descriptions of the choices we make. The way in which we choose to live and interact with persons in this world and with God. One promises ease and comfort in this world, but as Jesus notes, its end is eternal destruction. The other path makes no false advertising of being easy. It promises difficulty. It promises trials. It even promises at times persecution in this life. But it also promises that the end is eternal life and entrance to the kingdom of God. Now as we look at these two paths and these two gates, another question may come to mind. Why would God do this? Why would He orchestrate it this way? Why couldn't He make the broad path the path that led to eternal life? Why did God make this life so hard, and why did He make it even harder for those who seek Him? And you know the answers to these questions. If you stop and think about it, I think you already know the answer. I mean, first we see that these questions ignore the reality that sin exists in the world, that we ourselves are sinners. It starts from a place of us being without sin, or at least not being so badly infected by sin that that should impact God's decision. 
So we realize that we've got a wrong perspective to even begin with. These questions are really like the child who wants to be content and left alone making mud pies when a spread of desserts is available to them within the house. In other words, God wants us to long for a world that is to come. He doesn't want us to long for this world. When we ask questions like this, we're trying to, we're really expressing that we want this world. We want the ease of this world we don't realize what we would be giving up. This world is not supposed to be all there is. This world is not supposed to be our home. We're not supposed to grow comfortable and settle down in this world. It's like Christian in the Pilgrim's Progress as he went along and he finds himself lured at times off of the path into comfort and ease and he falls asleep and he rests and he begins to be led off of the way. There's so many things in this life that promise ease and comfort to pull us away, that would keep us from that celestial city, from the kingdom of God. God wants us to long for the world that is to come, for the kingdom that is to come. We're not supposed to want this life to be all there is. We're not supposed to want to be in this sin-cursed world. We are supposed to long for eternity and the restoration of a world as God originally created it, free from sin. And when we stop and think about it, it really is all about perspective. I mean, how many truly happy persons do you know that are on this broad and easy path? How many content persons? How many peaceful persons? The path may appear easy and broad, but are those on it really happy? Or is it just false advertising? By contrast, think of those you know who walk the difficult path, who pursue righteousness and seek to please God. Think about those older saints you know who have traversed this path for years. What words would you use to describe them? I mean, you know they've had difficulty, you know they've had struggle, you know they've had trials, but what words would you use to describe them? Do they appear anxious? Do they appear worried? Are they angry, frustrated, discontent, easily upset? Quite the opposite, isn't it? One of the great blessings we have as believers is to demonstrate the great inward joy and peace that comes from walking upon this difficult path. In other words, it is not our circumstances or the path that determines our joy, but the hope at the end of the path. That's why Paul can say, rejoice always. That's why he can say, I have learned the secret of being happy, of being content. And it has nothing to do with what he has or doesn't have. Whether in want or in plenty, he is going to be content because it's not the path, it's not his circumstances that determines his joy. It's the gate. It's the goal. Now why is it that so few Seek the narrow gate. Certainly what we've just discussed plays into it, right? Certainly the fact that the path is difficulty discourages some from 
ever stepping foot on it. But we also see here in verse 14 that the narrow door is small. That narrowness does not primarily mean or firstly mean that only a few can squeeze through it, though the reality is few do enter it. Rather, the narrowness highlights the difficulty in finding it to begin with. In fact, apart from God opening our eyes, we're unable to even see this door. It's as if it's camouflaged and hidden from our sight. Apart from God changing our desires, we will always choose the broad door. Left to our own devices, we want nothing to do with the narrow gate or the difficult way. Left to our own devices, all we want to do is indulge our sin. John 3.19 and 20 say, This is the judgment that the light has come into the world, and men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. Paul says the same thing in Ephesians 4, 17-19. So this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk, no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. And in addition to our own sin, Satan is actively working to veil the message of the gospel to those who are on the broad and easy path. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3 and 4 say that even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Satan has blinded the eyes of the unbelieving, seeking to prevent them from seeing the narrow door. Our responsibility is to preach the gospel. So that as Paul writes just a few verses later in 2 Corinthians 4, that light might shine in the darkness. In 4.6, For God who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who is shown in our heart to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. At the beginning of verse 13, Jesus echoes the heart of the Father. We see here that he does not wish any to perish, but all to come to repentance. Notice he doesn't simply say, go ahead and choose one or the other. No, he warns everyone who hears to go one specific route, the narrow way, the hard way, the difficult way that leads to life. He's standing there as the way marker, pointing one direction. Just as God the Father does not desire for any to perish, but all to come to repentance, so Jesus himself wishes the same and expresses the will of the Father here. The sad reality is that most ignore the warning. They ignore the sign that points to the way of life, not believing that the easy way is really dangerous and destructive. Just as the people of Noah's day believed that the door of the ark was only for the fool They ignored Noah's preaching of righteousness. Instead, they followed their own path and all perished in the flood, save Noah and his family. 
Ever since sin has entered the world, God has been calling upon persons to forsake the easy path leading to destruction and to choose the way of righteousness and life. Deuteronomy 30, 15-19, the Lord said, See, I have set before you today life and prosperity and death and adversity, and that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in His ways, to keep His commandments and His statutes and His judgments, so that you may live and multiply, and that the Lord your God may bless you in the land where you are entering to possess it. You see, God has always desired for people to find the narrow way and the narrow gate. God spoke through Jeremiah to the people of Judah, calling them to repent of their sins and worship Him alone, saying in Jeremiah 21.8, You shall also say to this people, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I set before you the way of life, and the way of death. Solomon writes in Proverbs 4.18 saying, But the path of righteousness is like the light of dawn. That light shines brighter and brighter until the full day. And then down in verses 25-27 through of that same proverb, he says, Let your eyes look directly ahead. Let your gaze be fixed straight in front of you. Watch the path of your feet, and all your ways will be established. Do not turn to the right nor to the left, Turn your foot from evil. Ever since sin has entered the world, there has been only two possible conclusions to this life. The wide or the narrow gate. Every person who has ever lived has chosen one of these two paths. There is no other option. There is no other path. The narrow gate of life requires that you cry out to God for forgiveness of your sins, repenting and turning from them, knowing that the only forgiveness that is offered is offered through Christ, who will unlock the door into the kingdom of God. And if you have never done that, if you have never repented of your sins, then I plead with you to recognize your sinfulness and call out to God for forgiveness from your sins, that you may begin walking on this narrow path. Throughout this whole section, beginning in verse 13, going all the way through verse 23, which we'll look at next week, Jesus is concerned with ensuring that those who claim to be disciples do, in fact, enter the kingdom of God. And in the midst of this discussion, in the midst of this whole section, Jesus drops in a warning in verses 15 through 20 concerning false prophets, saying, Beware the false prophets. Now, in the midst of a discussion of two paths and two gates, why this warning and why here? Well, the simple answer is that one of the easiest ways to be kept or led from the narrow path is by false teachers or false prophets. Those who come and say, there is another way. Teachers who say, choose the easy life. Those who confuse the message and teach contrary to the message of Jesus, the prophets, and the apostles. Notice here in verse 15 that they come in sheep's clothing. Now sheep's clothing is a reference to the garb of a shepherd. In the ancient Near East, a shepherd would often use a sheepskin or a goatskin to make a coat that they could wear to keep warm. Jesus then is not warning the sheep against mistaking the false prophet for another sheep. No, this is a warning that the sheep might not mistake the false teacher for a shepherd 
a far more dangerous mistake to make. The term beware here implies that a disciple of Jesus must be on constant alert for false prophets, never letting one's guard down. The threat of the false prophet is continual, thus the vigilance of the disciple must be tireless and constant. Now this warning is, notice here, for the disciples, the believers in Jesus Christ. You see, the disciple of Jesus Christ is in danger while on this earth of stumbling and walking away from the difficult path. Or perhaps it's one who wants to call themselves a disciple of Jesus Christ, who has begun to hear the message, who may be led astray. And while they remain off the difficult path, even the disciple will have no comfort or assurance concerning eternal life. A true disciple cannot lose their salvation, but they can dishonor the very God who saved them. They can remove from themselves the joy, the peace, the comfort, the security that a child of God should have. See, Satan would love nothing more than to see the light dim and the saltiness of our lives removed. And one of the ways he does this is by enticing us to follow errant teaching and believe and act contrary to Scripture. Just as traversing the road requires constant diligence so as not to stumble, so too does protecting oneself and others from false prophets. But if they are good at disguising themselves, and if they even look like a true shepherd, how are we going to recognize them? How do we recognize these false teachers and false prophets? Well, despite the false prophets' clever attempts to disguise themselves, Jesus exclaims, you'll recognize them by their fruit. The character and the nature of their life is the most telling and important feature in recognizing a false prophet. Here Jesus introduces yet another metaphor, that of fruit, or the produce of one's lives. That is the actions and the words of our lives. Jesus is saying certainly we must watch their teaching, but that is usually going to be the easier thing to recognize. And a good false teacher, a good false prophet, knows how to, for the most part, say the right things. At least at a superficial level. And it may take a long while, or a good bit of time, and the piecing together of several teachings before you start to realize that this is a false teacher just by their teaching alone. The really dangerous ones are going to make it much harder to recognize any false teaching. They'll even teach doctrine that sounds correct or is mostly true. So Jesus says instead, turn your attention to the questions about their character. Ask questions about the character of any leader. Ask questions, for example, such as, how do they interact with others? How do they interact with their family? What does it look like? What is the, the fruit of their family life? Ask what fills their conversations. Do they exhort and encourage? Or do you find that they demean others? Do they invite persons into their homes? Are they hospitable? Do they encourage transparency in their lives? Or do they try to shield and hide their private life? Are your leaders busy discipling others and spending time with others? Or are they isolated and insulated from other persons? 
is an inordinate amount of their time spent on leisure? Do they seem obsessed with building a name for themselves? Do you find that a leader is frequently talking about money? Do your leaders demand honor and respect from persons? Or are they willing to do menial tasks? Do your leaders serve others or do they expect others to serve them? Do they show love for others? Are they gentle and meek toward those in the church? And then finally, not taking our eye completely off of their teaching, we should be asking, not only is what they teach correct, but what type of topics do they teach on? And conversely, are there topics that they avoid teaching because it would demonstrate what they really believe? What is learned about their doctrine and thinking from conversations? These are the type of questions we should be asking as we evaluate our leaders. Coupled with that are the character qualities we find in 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, and the rest of Scripture. Persons teaching correct doctrine can still be incredibly dangerous. While their public teaching might be correct, their life will encourage persons to wander from the difficult path, even while they teach correct doctrine. Now, I do believe that false teachers will at some point give way in their teaching or aspects of their teaching, but they can, for a while, be teaching correct doctrine while leading others astray. This is why most of the emphasis on church leaders is put on character and actions in Scripture. It's not put on eloquence or charisma. It's not put on natural leadership qualities. It's not based on education or knowledge, but rather on character. Yes, a leader in the church must be able to teach and correct false doctrine, but the qualities of a leader of the church are overwhelmingly character qualities. Paul told Timothy that both life and doctrine must be closely watched. In 1 Timothy 4.16, Paul says, Pay close attention to yourself, to your teaching. Persevere in these things. For as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. Spiritual fruit, that is character qualities that align with what Jesus and the apostles teach, is the necessary evidence that one has truly believed in Jesus. Understand this important statement, fruit does not save, but it verifies. In the past year, and really in the past several years, we've observed numerous leaders who claim the name of Christ fall into sin, grievous sin, or it's been exposed. Some of these you may be familiar with, others perhaps not. Now we know that believers will sin. We know that even leaders who are believers will sin. But for some reason, we somehow act as if leaders can't or won't sin. And so we hesitate to hold them accountable, perhaps, or we become utterly devastated when sin is exposed. And in doing this, we help to perpetuate the problem or this attitude and this isolation of leaders, this otherness, as if they're some other class of Christian. They're still responsible for their actions and their sin, but we don't help them in this. Really, we are much more like Israel Old Testament Israel, then we like to admit. 
We raise up and elevate these leaders because we want to have a king, or in this case, celebrities like the culture around us. And then we become devastated when these leaders don't live up to perfection. The greater spiritual problem, though, is that when a perceived leader who is a true Christian falls into sin, they may lead many others from the path merely by their influence. Not even always because they're false prophets. Though I would say if they hide their sin and persist in their sin, then in this way they are at least acting like a false prophet, even if they are not themselves unbelievers. All of this is why James warns that teachers incur a stricter judgment. It is a fearful and terrifying thing to be a teacher and a leader. What we've witnessed in recent months and years is a sad reality, but it's also an important reminder that our hope should never be put in persons. We're thankful for those whom the Lord raises up to teach and to lead and to instruct. We want to trust them. We want to follow them. And we should, but at all times, measuring them against Scripture, measuring their lives and their fruit against Scripture. The saints must at all times be watchful to make certain that their leaders fulfill their calling. However, just because we are to be diligent also does not mean that we forego all else that should mark a disciple of Jesus Christ. You know, there's a text and a group of people that are often used to highlight what we should be doing in this regard, right? It's the Bereans. We're told to be a Berean. Well, what does that mean? What what did the Bereans do? Well, the Bereans, they sought the Scripture eagerly after Paul came to them and began preaching. And they sought it to see if what the things Paul said were true. They wanted to know, was it right? And the Scriptures they would have sought would have been the Old Testament to measure what Paul was saying about Jesus Christ and all of this teaching, measuring it against the Old Testament. Is it true? Is this the same God? Is it the same promises? Is this the Messiah who will save us from our sin? A lot of times the emphasis is put on the fact that they looked into Paul. And that's an important observation. It's a good observation. But what's often missed is that they sought the Scriptures eagerly. There wasn't a criticalness. There wasn't a lack of love. There wasn't a lack of charity in this approach. No, they were excited. They longed for the things Paul said to be true. In other words, it wasn't with a harsh critical skepticism, but with an excitement and an anticipation that it would in fact be true, but they need to see it for themselves as well. Disciples of Jesus Christ must demonstrate loving concern and spiritual vigilance together. There's so many... There are many so-called discernment ministries whose primary goal is to identify anything that smells of false teaching. And while they may at times be correct, these ministries often lack love. They lack the fruit of the Spirit. They do not demonstrate, as we looked at a few weeks ago, that necessary component of meekness and humility. Be very wary of those persons and those ministries who are constantly criticizing but rarely encouraging and exhorting. They may, in fact, be just as dangerous as the false prophets they seek to expose. Now, as we close, I want us to turn our attention back to the difficult path, what is often called the narrow path. 
this hard path in following and obeying Christ on this earth. And I want to turn specific attention to those who claim to be disciples of Jesus Christ. One of the greatest deceptions that has been foisted upon this world by Satan is that hard is bad and easy is good. From the time of Adam's sin in Genesis 3 and the entrance of sin into the world, hard is what God has told us to expect in this life. The difficulty of life serves as a reminder of the destructive nature of sin. Does not mean God does not bless us in the midst of a hard life, but to shirk back as if difficulty is something unexpected or to be avoided is to misunderstand the effect of sin on the world, the significance and the pervasiveness of sin in this world. Some of the greatest blessings we will experience in this life will come through choosing the hard and difficult path and seeking to obey God. If you want comfort and ease in this life, If you allow desire for the easy way to govern your decisions, then you are not walking as one that is on the difficult path. Now this doesn't mean that you seek out persecution or you attempt to make life more painful and hard than it is. But what it does mean is that you do not make ease and comfort your compass and guide for decision making in this life. For the believer in Jesus Christ, it is often true that that the difficult option is the better option. For example, laying aside pride is hard, but it is good. Asking for forgiveness and confessing sin is difficult, but necessary. Not pursuing wealth and the things of this world can be difficult, but it will be blessed. God's commands are narrow. They do not leave room for deviation or man's preference. They require that we walk so as to not turn from the right or to the left. In contrast to a wide road that leaves plenty of moral latitude, the narrow road is restrictive and morally and ethically confining. It establishes clear boundaries for our behavior that are not to be crossed under any circumstance. Those boundaries are obedience to God's instructions in Scripture. In fact, the reminder to keep God's word and obey Him are found in Psalm 1, which we read earlier this morning. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. The path of the blessed man is in meditating and obeying the law of the Lord, And in order to obey, we must make it a daily habit to put our desires, our selfish and sinful desires away, and to lay aside our sin. The writer of Hebrews says, beginning in Hebrews 12.1, Therefore, since we have such a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider Him who has endured such hostility by sinners against Himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. 
The early Christian church understood the importance of Jesus' teaching concerning the difficult path or road. In fact, the early church was so clear in their understanding and so clear in living out this principle that the Jewish leaders called them the way in Acts 9-2. May our pursuit of Christ and our desire to follow His example mark us the same as this early church. That our love for Christ, our obedience to Christ would shine forth and glorify God as we seek to live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age while fixing our hope on the kingdom to come and that narrow door. May be said of us just like it was that early church that we are on the way, the narrow way. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this choice that is set before us in these two paths. We thank you that you made it unambiguous which path we should pursue. Thank you that you have opened our eyes to see the narrow gate. May we go forth from here faithful to walk on the narrow path. Thank you for our brothers and sisters who you've given to us to encourage us, to exhort us, and to help help us along on the narrow way, on this difficult path. Father, this life is hard. It does us no good to pretend otherwise. It is a hard life that we live because of the sin that is within us, the sin that is around us, and Satan himself. Father, may we walk faithfully. May we put on the full armor of God in this life. May we be governed by love in all that we do. Pray these things in your name. Amen.